Paul's letter to the Galatians. It was written to a number of churches in the region of Galatia where Paul had traveled on one of his missionary journeys. You can read the stories in the book of Acts. He wrote this important letter from a place of deep passion and frustration. Here's the backstory. Christianity began as a Jewish messianic movement in Jerusalem, but its message was for all humanity, and so it quickly spread beyond Israel. By Paul's time as a missionary, there were as many non-Jews as there were Jewish people in the Jesus movement, and this sparked a huge debate that we know about from the book of Acts chapter 15. Historically, the covenant people of God were focused in one ethnic group, Israel, and they were set apart by the practices commanded in the Torah, like circumcision of males, eating kosher, observing the Sabbath. And there were many Jewish Christians who believed that for all of these non-Jews to truly become a part of God's family, they needed to obey the laws of the Torah. And so some of these Jewish Christians ended up coming to the Galatian churches. They were undermining Paul and demanding circumcision of all these male non-Jewish Christians. And so many of them were. And when Paul found out, he was brokenhearted and angry. And this letter is the result. He first challenges the Galatians with his summary of the gospel message about the crucified Messiah. He then argues that this gospel is what creates the new multi-ethnic family of Jesus and Abraham. And then he shows how this gospel is what truly transforms people by the presence and power of the Spirit. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So as the video lays out a little bit, uh, the, the central thing that's being addressed with the letter to the Galatians is this... this um, different understanding amongst the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians on just what exactly you have to do once you are a follower of Jesus. Um, and so it's not written to one church, it's actually written to a bunch of churches in this region called Galatia, which is in what we would call central Turkey now. And um, the, the interesting thing to me is, you know, there, there is that debate, right, between what Paul calls the Judaizers, the people who want, peop who want all the Gentile Christians to follow the Torah. And, but what's happened in Galatia is those people have already won the debate. The, the Galatian Christians who were not born Jews are following the Torah. So they're, they're going back and following the law. And, and just pause for a minute and think about how good of a public speaker you must be to convince a bunch of full-grown adults to stop eating bacon and get circumcised. <laughs> That's power right there. I can't preach that well. So this whole letter is Paul explaining to these Gentile Christians why they don't need to do that. And so we'll get into detail here. We're just going to start in Galatians 1 and picking up in verse 10 and then going through into chapter 2. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. 
And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So Paul's trying to set out at the beginning of the letter his own credentials and the credentials of the gospel that he preached to them to make sure that they understand where this is all coming from. And, and he reminds them that at one point, he was a devout Pharisee. If anyone should have been telling them to follow the law, it would have been Paul. Paul would have rigidly upheld the Torah. And by his own admission, he's been regarded as this kind of wonderkind amongst the Pharisees, right? He, he's this rising star that everyone's impressed by. He's, he's advancing far beyond men of, uh, of his similar age. And, and before his encounter with Jesus, he's this vehement opponent of Christianity. If he'd been a little bit older, and the timing had been a little different, he probably would have been one of the Pharisees who kept confronting Jesus as he was teaching. But he's not. And after his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, his whole world is turned upside down. But before he ever begins his ministry or his preaching, he spends years thinking through what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. For three years, he's in Arabia and in Damascus, not preaching, not, not teaching anything, not planting churches, just praying and reading the scriptures and trying to think through what it means that this man who was crucified and now lives again is the Messiah he's been waiting for his whole life. Because he's got to rethink everything about his faith, everything about the law, everything about what he thought was true of God, and wrap that around Jesus. And so he does that for three years. And then he goes and he spends two weeks in Jerusalem with Peter. Cephas and Peter are the same person. And he spends two weeks with Peter and James. 
And you have to imagine that during that two weeks, he was telling them all the things he just spent three years thinking through, right? Hey, guys, listen, this is what I think it all means. I want you to tell me if I'm on the right path. And so for two weeks, he and Peter and James are talking and, and, and sharing stories and, and making sure that, that this revelation that Paul has received is in line with what Peter and James got directly from Jesus as well. And you have to imagine as well that since you know, at this point none of the Gospels have been written down, that Peter and James are also sharing with Paul all the stories that are going to get written down in the Gospels later on. Paul is hearing the stories of Jesus' ministry from two of the men who were there to witness it all. And it's only after all that happens that Paul then goes and starts planting churches, and he goes specifically to the Gentiles. And, and then for, after 14 years, he thinks, I better go check in with the guys in Jerusalem. Maybe a little late. But after 14 years, he goes back specifically so he can see if he's actually still on the right track, just to make sure that, that he, what he's preaching still holds up with what the apostles heard from Jesus. And lo and behold, it does. And so now Paul is, is laying out his credentials and he says, look, I didn't get my gospel from another preacher. I got it directly from Jesus who appeared to me on the road. Jesus revealed to me directly that he's Messiah. I got this revelation from him. I didn't receive my gospel from human hands. It came from God, just like it did for the 12 disciples. And those 12 disciples have all said to me that what I'm preaching is true. This is the same gospel that they've received. So he establishes, first of all, that what he's preaching is the same thing that they've been preaching. It's the same thing that Jesus was preaching. Once he does that, he moves on. And here in Galatians 2.16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is what it took him three years to work out, by the way. This is a radical shift in the way that a good Jewish man thinks about God. That, that actually the works of the Torah do not justify you. It's faith in Jesus that justifies you. And what's really radical is what he's effectively saying is all these things that mark out the Jewish people as distinct in the Old Testament, all the things we were commanded to do that show the rest of the world that we are God's chosen people, they mean nothing now. The only thing that marks you out as God's people is faith in Jesus. That's it. And now you Gentiles can be included in God's chosen people because the only thing that marks you out is faith in Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. Holy behavior doesn't justify you. Following the rules won't justify you. Even avoiding sin does not justify you. The Galatians are going back and they're embracing old Jewish ideas about how to be righteous. And they all involve things like circumcision and dietary laws and purity rituals. And Paul says, no, these things aren't needed anymore. All that's needed now is faith in Jesus. And in one sense, this is the most liberating thing we could hear, that, that faith in Jesus is all we need. But, but it's really hard, actually, to truly believe that. 
to truly believe in our hearts that we don't have to do something to earn it. Even those of us who've been going to church our entire lives and we've been hearing the message our entire lives that we're saved by grace through faith alone, even if that's been drilled into our minds since day one, it's actually difficult to really truly believe in our hearts that we don't have to do something to earn it. And the problem is that that doesn't just mean that we struggle in our faith. It actually affects how we think about and treat other people. It is a lot easier. We're a lot quicker to, to judge and even condemn someone if deep down we don't truly believe that we are justified by faith alone. Because once you begin drifting off of that belief, even if it's just subconscious, you've either got to start thinking a lot worse about yourself or a lot more highly about yourself than you really should. And a lot of us will go down that second path. And we'll start to, even, again, even if it's just subconsciously, begin to think of all the things we do that make us a good person or a good Christian. And, and we begin to think highly of ourselves, and from there we look down on people who don't measure up in our eyes. When the truth is, we are not holier or better than anyone else. There's, there's no one out there who is a worse sinner than we are. It doesn't work that way. Everyone is saved and justified only by faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only measuring stick. What Paul has explained to the Galatians is they have to forget their old identity and construct a new identity that is based around Jesus. They have to rid themselves of all the vestiges of their former selves and learn to live by their new identity, which is found in Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the king. And you see, for ancient Israel and for most other ancient peoples, the king is not just a ruler. The king is the representative of the people. He represents them with other nations. He represents them in battle, and he represents them before the God they worship. And the way they understand this is, what is true of the king is true of his people. Whatever virtues he has are understood to belong to the people. Whatever vices he has are the people's vices. You can see this in the Bible too, right? David fights Goliath as Israel's representative. When he defeats Goliath, it is Israel's victory. They win the battle. And that's not an unusual thing in the ancient world. You would often have two representatives, one from each side, fight, and that determines the outcome of the battle. When we put our trust in Jesus, when we actually have faith in Jesus, when we proclaim him as our king, what is true of him becomes true of us. He is our representative before God. This is when Paul keeps using this phrase that we are in Christ, we're in Jesus. That's what he's talking about. He is our representative. The things that are true of him become true of us when we put our faith in him. Which leaves us with the question of what to do with all these laws from the Old Testament, which are still scripture for us. And Paul answers that in chapter 3, verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. 
But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So the law, if it doesn't justify you, it has to do something else. The law serves as two different things. It's, it's this sort of magnifying glass that highlights Israel's sin and judges Israel for it. And at the same time, it's this guardian. It's, it's, the best word is really actually a babysitter. The, the word that gets translated as guardian, uh, sometimes it's caretaker or custodian. The actual Greek word refers to uh, a slave whose job is to look after the children on the parents' behalf, take them to school, see that they don't get into trouble, make sure they're fed, all of that stuff. It's a babysitter. In other words, this whole period of time from the exodus out of Egypt up to the coming of the Messiah is a time in which Israel is still like a child and needed someone to look after it. And that's what the law does. The law guides them, gives them clear boundaries, keeps them out of trouble as much as possible while also teaching Israel about God. When the Messiah comes, the law has completed its task and it's no longer required. So trying to live by the law then is like denying all the work that Jesus has done. Which means that anytime we, we fall into that pattern of, of uh, believing that we can do anything to, to be worthy, to earn our justification in Christ, to, to, to be worthy of all the gifts that God's giving. Anytime we do that, we're doing the same thing. It's as if we're denying all the work that Jesus did for us on the cross and in the resurrection. Which brings us into chapter 5. Because if the law then is redundant, if faith in Jesus is all we need, we're still left with the question of um, how, how do we behave ourselves? How do we know if, we don't, if the law is redundant, how do we know right from wrong? And Paul's going to answer that in chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now we read that list and, and there's like certain things, uh, desires of the flesh that jump out at you right away, right? Uh, and we tend to focus on those, uh, but then ignore things like fits of anger, rivalries, 
Um, I don't think many of you are sorcerers, so I'm not going to count that against you. But idolatry. Everyone's guilty of idolatry. Now, when he talks about comparing the spirit versus the flesh, um, sometimes we'll read that as like our spirit versus our flesh. And we create this duality between body and spirit. But he's specifically talking about the Holy Spirit. It's the desires of the Holy Spirit versus us, the flesh. So the spirit who now lives in us gives us the power to live as God wants us to live, which makes the law redundant. It's no longer necessary, not because it hasn't served its purpose. It's not that the law was plan A and Jesus was plan B, and when plan A failed, we got plan B. It's that the law has done its job. It it took care of Israel while it was needed, and with the Messiah here, it's redundant. When we make ourselves dependent on the Holy Spirit, all the things which are forbidden by the law are crucified with Jesus because his life becomes our life. We're set free. But we still have to actually make determinations about how we're going to live. Um, when I was growing up, my mother didn't allow soda in the house. Um, I mean, if we were at a restaurant, I could order a soda. If we were having pizza delivered, she'd let us get one. Uh, but she didn't buy soda to keep at home. Right? We just drank water, maybe every so often some juice. And you might think that then once I uh, moved out of my parents' house and, and had a job and, and had all the money I wanted to spend on soda, that I would have done exactly that, right? Uh, rebel against whatever your parents taught you. But I didn't, and, and I still don't, because mom was right. It's probably not a good idea for me to have a fridge full of soda to drink uh, available whenever I want it. Now, it's a silly example, but I'm free to buy as much of it as I want, but it's not a good idea for me to do that. I think I and, and a lot of other people have noticed that, that in the world around us, we're, we're, we're slowly losing the idea that freedom comes with responsibility. Right? We've got free speech, but you are not free from the consequences of your free speech. All of our political and legal structures are actually dependent on free citizens who choose to be virtuous and responsible with their freedom. I probably don't have to actually give a whole lot of examples of ways in which people have abused their freedom in the world around us and caused problems for other people who live near them. You can all think of all kinds of ways that people do that. Our economy, our justice system, even our system of government can only succeed if we as a people are choosing to use our freedom wisely and not abuse it. And the same is true in Christ. We have free will. Christ has set us free from the power of sin and death. But what we do with that freedom is up to us. We can abuse it. We can just take the cheap grace and then try and live as if nothing is different, which will ultimately cause us to fall back into slavery to sin. Or we can use our freedom to pursue holiness. We aren't just freed from sin just to be living however we want to live. We are set free for a purpose. We are set free so we can love. 
Love is the central command of the law. Love God, love your neighbor. Even Jesus tells people all the law and the prophets is summed up in these two commandments. And we can only truly fulfill that commandment by allowing the Holy Spirit to direct our life. This is the spirit that Paul sets against the flesh. This is how we fulfill all the laws and the prophets in Jesus. When we allow the Spirit to guide us, we fulfill the commandment to love and we use our freedom in Christ appropriately because now God is guiding us directly so the law becomes redundant. See, we struggle, though, with that idea of of freedom. We struggle with that idea, even if we don't consciously struggle with it, we struggle with the idea that, that faith is the only thing we need. Because, you see, if we've got a list of things we have to do to be saved... We're in control, and we feel good. If the only answer is trust in Jesus, we don't really know what to do with that. It's freeing, but to a scary degree. It's actually kind of comforting if you can just check off the boxes on a list, right? Okay, I've done this and this and this and this. I know I'm good. If the only box to check is trust in Jesus, it's a little scary, isn't it? You've got nothing to measure. You've got no progress to track. You've got no way to compare yourself to other people. How do you know? And the great irony, of course, is the answer to that is faith. That's what faith is. Hope in things you cannot see, in things you cannot measure. So we will tend even without realizing, to revert to this works righteousness idea that we've just got to make sure we do all the right things, follow all the right rules, check off all the right boxes, and then we're okay. But Jesus doesn't require anything except trust in him. And once we do that, he sends his spirit to guide us precisely so that we don't need the law anymore. The reason we don't have a list of rules to follow or a law to obey is not that we're free to do as we please. It's that the Holy Spirit dwells within us and guides us. We don't need the law because God guides us directly in our hearts. We're not free to do as we please, but we have been set free so that we can serve. Freedom in Christ is freedom to love as God loves. And we can choose to abuse our freedom, to ignore the guidance of God and and treat his grace cheaply. Or we can choose to use our freedom properly, trusting in God's grace to guide us. Faith is all that is needed. We might think we need more. We might think we need to uh, accomplish something, to to grow to a certain degree of holiness or or achieve some some kind of tangible measure of success. But, But none of that matters. All that matters is having faith in Jesus. Faith is everything. Faith is what carries you through the storm. Faith is what brings light to the darkness. Faith is how we are saved, and faith is what keeps us in the arms of Jesus. There is no other measure of success. There is no other measure of holiness. There is no other mark of Christianity. It's faith and faith alone. Thanks be to God. Amen.